everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Calvary. Oh, there goes a clip. Um, before we get into the announcements proper, let me just say that my family and I, as well as the team, if they haven't had a chance to say so, are very glad to be back home in the States, and we had a really wonderful um, trip serving along the church in Paris. Um, it was, it was really neat to see all of this uh, work and partnership and prayer kind of come into fruition while we were there. Um, and it went so well, actually, that next week those same short films that we've produced here and used in Paris now um, are going to be shown to a small group of pastors across France. And since they're already subtitled in French, they're going to consider using them as well. And so... Um, anyways, it was a great trip. Thank you for your prayers and for your support on all that. I'd really encourage you to um, dig deep and talk to the team or to myself to, to hear more about what happened uh, while we were there. Um, in terms of announcements this morning, just a, a few things. First off, I saw a lot of visitors this morning. Welcome. I just wanted to explain that the restrooms here are in the basement and accessible from outside, which is not as weird as it sounds. Uh, you can just take that on credit. But the keys for the restrooms you'll find right over the sink uh, in the fellowship hall right here, and you just go out that side door, you'll see a staircase going down, and you'll find a restroom. Um, also, our bulletin is digitally available. You can get it delivered to your email address. You can just view it on the website, uh, or you can download a smartphone app. Um, but there's a few items on there I want to walk through this morning. Uh, the first is we are still taking donations for, for Lowell Elementary. And so if you'd like to participate in that, there's still time to do so. Um, it's, we're basically just looking for a short list of uh, the usual school supplies as well as a few other things. Um, also, as was mentioned earlier, we are eating together after service. It's the first Sunday of the month, and so this is a habit that we make. In fact, if you'd like to come back tonight, we're going to eat together after the evening service as well and have dinner together, so that's two free meals. Um, but if you'd like to join us for that, which we'd encourage you to do so, we're just going to move next door into the bottom floor of the duplex next door right after service. Um, next, I'm going to invite up uh, Christy. She's going to tell us a little bit about another opportunity to get involved. So come on up, Christy. Good morning. My name is Christy. Um, we are collecting socks for the homeless, and um, we're going to distribute them here at City Hall Park um, for the holidays. Um, so for um, the homeless, socks are very valuable because they're always on their feet, and um, it's hard to, to have them washed or whatever, and I've just heard that they're like gold to, to homeless people. Um, so for the month of November, we'll be um, collecting socks in a bin at the back of church, um, and we are asking for gently used or new warm socks. And, um, and then in December, we'll pick two Sundays um, to distribute them after um, first service and we'll combine it with some hot hands and a Christmas card and maybe some hot chocolate and we'll just spend some time uh, spreading Christmas cheer um, down in uh, City Hall Park. So you guys can help join us by either donating socks or um, uh, join us for the distribution and those dates are 
still to be determined. So those will show up in the bulletin pretty soon, I think. Um, that's it. Thank you. All right, one last thing I'd like to mention. Um, Christy and her co-roommates, uh, basically the rest of the Van Dorn clan, are helping me host a discussion group for skeptics, and it's just, it's just getting rolling. Um, in fact, we haven't even really started yet. We just met for the first time on Wednesday. Um, we have plenty of books available that we're going through, and the format is, is really simple. Um, we just read the chapter during the week, and then we discuss what was interesting, provocative, where we have questions about the chapter um, on Wednesdays uh, at si uh, 6.30 in the evening. Um, it's a completely open door. It's open to anyone. Um, we, we have found in the past that the more diverse the group is in terms of where you're at, new Christian, not a Christian, looking, not sure you're looking, been a Christian a long time, but have friends who are looking that you don't know how to answer. The broader that diversity is, the better the discussion. So I really mean it. Wherever you're at, you're welcome to join us on Wednesday nights. Um, we'll probably roll through December with this group and into January, but we're just going to kind of take it one chapter a week as it comes. Um, so that's once again Wednesday night. You can find more inf uh, information about that in the bulletin. Now we're going to go ahead and move into our Bible study this morning. We are about halfway through a short series on 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 um, called Hearts Over Clubs. And um, what's going on in the church of Corinth that Paul is writing to uh, and what, what's going on that he's writing about seems a little bit cryptic, a little bit foreign, a little bit unrelatable. Um, it has something to do with food sacrificed to idols. Uh, but although the, the specific application of these principles seems foreign to us, it's, it's not a conversation we're having in the church today, the underlying principles reach into a large territory of life, which is when you've got a church full of people, and those people are different, when their conscience differs, and when there's disagreement about behavior on issues where there's not specific and clear direct statements in scripture, how do you navigate that? And what Paul ultimately provides in this is the underlying foundation of a Christian ethic of decision making. And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, Matt and Nick explained to us um, first that, that love is the foundation of this ethic. And so the first thing that the Corinthian church was presenting for their decision-making was knowledge. And they said, look, we know that idols aren't really real and that there's only one God. And so anyone who worships in a pagan temple is like worshiping in a unicorn temple. It's not a real thing. So there's no value or threat in it. We have the knowledge. So we're smart enough. We're not ignorant. So why can't we do it? And Paul moves them. He pivots them and he says, well, that may be true, but that's not loving. And here's why. Uh, and then last week we looked and here they basically said, yeah, but, but I like these things. I mean, the, the food is good food. The, um, the gathering space is good for my career and for my cultural, you know, these are things that I want to do. And he says, your desires are a fine ethic, but they still fall short of this mechanism for Christian decision making. And once again, he points to the better ethic of love. This is not really about components, what uh, components of the decision-making uh, process for Christians is. It's about the foundation. 
Okay, and so obviously knowledge makes a part of your decision making. When you decide, will I do this, yes or no, it's a knowledge question, clearly. In the same way, desire is a part of it too. Any Christian ethic that reduces it down to whether you want to or not, do it or don't do it, in these gray issues doesn't make any sense. Um, but what he's trying to do is show that the fine point on a Christian ethic, the, the, um, the underlying, motivating, central decision always has to do with love. That's how we make these decisions. And so whereas uh, knowledge basically says, yes, but I'm one of the initiate. Yes, but I understand I'm not like those ignorant folks. That's a very self-oriented way of thinking, right? It says, I know, and, and it pridefully says, because I know, I can do what I want. In the same way, um, this idea that says what I want is what I want, and since it's an okay thing, it's okay, the end, also has nothing to do with how that impacts other people. This morning, Paul transitions and he deals with the concept of rights. Okay? Effectively, he pushes the issue to what I deserve, what is owed me, what I've earned. And really, when you look at all of these uh, I'm going to call them excuses for shorthand, for behavior that hurts other people, it's pretty common. These are things that we hear. These are things that we hear coming out of our own mouth or think in our own head. We go, yes, but this is okay uh, because I know better. This is okay because this is what I want, and it's not a bad want, so it's fine. Or like we'll look at this morning, look, I've earned this. I know my rights. I've deserved this. And this is, I think, an especially important one because in general, the way we think about a religious ethic of behavior always has to do with rights and what you deserve. Oftentimes, that's what we reduce religion down to. Religion is about earning and doing what's right so that you get what's coming to you. And so heaven then, for example, is the reward for a life well lived. And so what that engenders in us is an ethic that basically says, I've lived right, therefore give me what I deserve. Or I know this isn't wrong, I know the boundaries over here, I'm not crossing the boundaries, so let me live this life. But once again, it's inherently a self-centered viewpoint. It's about me and what I deserve and what I get and defending my rights in these things. It's especially interesting to us, I think, as modern Americans. Because rights is a primary form of discussion. And it's worth reminding you this morning that the Bill of Rights and the emphasis of rights originally was about protecting the rights of those who couldn't protect their own rights. In contrast, today we have become all about, um, you know, strongly defending our own rights. And that's a related thing. And I would even say it's a valuable thing. But when you make it the center of your ethic, when you make it the primary uh, foundation of your voting, for example, and especially when you use it to determine which things you can and cannot do in the Christian life, it will always mislead you. And so what Paul does this morning is he points to himself as an example. In fact, for all of chapter 9, the next three weeks, he's talking about himself, but we need to keep in mind that he's not really talking about the issues he presents. He's using those as an illustration of this broader issue of food sacrifice to idols, this broader issue of how, how we should behave and think through our decisions. So if you would open up to 1 Corinthians 9 this morning, we'll read the passage through and then we'll pray. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be one stuck in the back of a pew near you. You're welcome to open up that and turn to 1 Corinthians 9 and follow along with us. 
Now, for context this morning, I actually want to read the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13 there, and then we're going to read through chapter 9 all the way to verse 18 before we pray. Paul speaking says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much? If we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting." For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this issue seems so foreign on one hand, and at the, on the other hand, it seems so prevalent. Uh, it touches so many issues of our life that it can be difficult to see your word touch down into the day-to-day of our life, into application for ourselves. I pray that you'd help us navigate that distance this morning, um, that we would see the truth and the goodness of what Paul argues here, and that we would press deeper into a Uh, a Christian ethic of love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul uses as an illustration here his own apostleship. Uh, The fact that he's been appointed by Jesus to represent Jesus, to go out to proclaim Jesus, to invite people into salvation, to plant churches, and to be authority in the church that represents Jesus' authority. Specifically, he is talking about the Uh, uh, the compensation for that role, about if he gets paid. In other words, if the church is supporting his ministry financially. That's what he's talking about. Um, But it's worth keeping in mind, once again, that he's just using this as an illustration of rights, 
okay? And so we don't find out how this issue of, well, this is what I deserve, these are my rights, I know my rights, enters into the Corinthian church's thinking about food sacrifice to idols. But it's not hard to imagine what the argument would have looked like. Remember that this food sacrifice to idols often involved not just a religious aspect, but a social aspect. And so if, um, as, as either Matt or Nick, I don't remember which one, illustrated, if, uh, if you were part of a guild of, uh, you know, steel masons, for example, probably not steel, it's a little early for steel, but if, uh, if you're a metal worker guild and you've earned, you know, a higher point, there's a place of honor at the table. And yeah, that table happens to be in a pagan temple, but those are the big halls that you rent, and their fee for renting those halls is a sacrifice to the gods. And you can say, look, this place of honor I've earned, I've worked hard for. Or maybe there was a portion of the feast itself that was doled out to you, or the, um, when a sacrifice was made, maybe there was a select piece that was given to people in high standing. And so, it, once again, it's this issue of, Yes, but this is what I've earned, this place of honor, this is what I deserve. Or maybe it's even that they're seeing this through a religious lens and it's like, look, yeah, you're right, there's dumb Christians. And these dumb Christians have a hard time with these things, but I've attained maturity and I deserve to enjoy my freedoms, right? I have the right to imbibe in, in these things and to live life the way I want to live because I've worked hard etc. Okay. Um, in the same way, I think it's easy to recognize how this plays out in our own life, to look at areas of our life where some people might struggle with our behavior. The word that Paul uses in this chapter is stumble. So remember again, the idea here is that they would see that you're fine doing this behavior, would be emboldened to do it themselves, and it in, would end up being disastrous to them either because after doing it, they'd feel so convicted that now they feel effectively like God is mad at them, like they've done something wrong, that they're guilty, uh, or because maybe they don't have the self-control for that particular area, and so it begins this downward spiral. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an easy um, illustration to grasp at, and it'll be the only time I reference it this morning, but, but alcohol use, for example, okay? Yes, maybe you've earned the right to have a beer at the end of the day, but if you're with a person who knows that they have an addictive personality and they have just one beer with you, maybe it won't just be just one beer. And the reality is, whatever the issue is, whatever the area is, there is a tendency to bring in what we deserve, our rights, into the argument and say, yeah, but, but I've achieved this. I've gotten to this place. You know, I've worked hard to get here. And so Paul presents himself as an illustration of this, and he begins by using almost every argument we can think of to say, should an apostle be financially supported? Okay? He touches every area of life. Let's just look at that first. He begins with a bunch of rhetorical questions in verse 1. He says, am I not free? And the idea here is, am I not free to take advantage of these rights? He's just said, I'm not going to eat a sandwich again if it will stumble my brother, right? And he says, aren't I free to eat a sandwich? Aren't I free? And then he uses this question to transition to the idea of apostleship. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This was one of the requirements for apostleship. 
okay? You couldn't go to apostle school and just become an apostle. The apostles needed to be a couple of things. One, they had to have physically seen Jesus, specifically the risen Jesus after the cross. Two, they had to have the signs or the manifestations of apostleship. Uh, And three, they had to be directly commissioned, okay? And so they didn't say, well, I saw Jesus once on a corner, now that makes me an apostle. No, like we see in Paul's life, Jesus said, I'm commissioning you as an apostle, I'm sending you out. And so he says, don't I have the required prerequisites for apostleship? Haven't, aren't you familiar with my resume? And then he pushes it further and he says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He says, of any church, you should know I'm an apostle because I started this church, because I led you to the Lord. If you want to know that God has called me to plant churches, all you have to do is look around at your own church, which I planted. Okay? He continues on in verse 3. This is my defense to all those who would examine me. Now here Paul is not really making a defense. He's making an illustration. But we do know that there were many throughout Paul's life who questioned the validity of his apostleship. In fact, later on, even this fact that he refused to take payment for it became evidence to these super apostles, as he calls them in 2 Corinthians, evidence to them that he wasn't really the real deal. And so, shockingly, he avoids his rights, as we'll see, and that becomes evidence that he doesn't have any rights at all. But he, he's making a defense here for way of illustration, and so he asks these questions. Verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? The idea here is at the expense of the church. Shouldn't, shouldn't my food and drink be taken care of? He continues, he says in verse 5, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles or the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? He says all the other apostles... Uh, the brothers of uh, Jesus, uh, Jude and James, he says, when they travel throughout the churches, don't they bring their families along? He says, isn't that even what Peter does? Doesn't Peter bring his wife along? Isn't the church not just supporting one person, but that person's family? And yet, Paul uh, and possibly Barnabas, uh, they, they are living a, a single life. They're not bringing along a wife or a family. He says, uh, verse 6, Is it only I and Barnabas who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He, He says, is it something about us in particular? That it's fine for everyone else to get paid, but it's not right for us to do? He says, aren't we on the same par? Aren't we doing the same work? Now, he starts just opening these general questions, and then he begins his real line of defense. And I just want you to notice categorically where these defenses come from. Look at the first one in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? I don't think this has ever been a phenomenon, right? You never pack a lunch on your way to the front lines. The idea of being a soldier is that the nation you're defending will support you financially and put food on the table and give you a place to sleep and these types of things. Uh, He says next, who uh, plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? If you're working in a farm, you're going to get a paycheck. Uh, These are things that would resonate even with Karl Marx, am I right? You know, the idea here is that there's a relationship between work and pay. And it may not be your vineyard, but if you're working in it, then you're participating in the vineyard and you're owed part of the produce. He adds one more illustration here, and he says, Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? 
So what is he saying here? He's basically just saying this is a pan-industry standard. It doesn't matter what type of work you're doing, work for pay is a normal formula. In other words, he goes very broad and he says, this isn't just the way it is in the church, this is the way it is in every area of life. This is just a principle of life. So this is very similar to us in our rights going, but everybody does this. This is just the way the world works. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on and he says here in verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? He says, am I just looking at the way the world is run? And he says, no. He continues on, he says, does not the law, the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, let, let me just contextually explain what's going on here. Uh, an ox treading the grain means that you lay the grain in a big circle, you tie the ox to a pole in the center, and he walks around and walks over the grain. And as he does so, it removes all of the um, chaff, this outer coating that would get stuck right on that point in the back of your tongue that you can't get rid of. You know, It has no nutritional value. It's like the wrapper that grain comes in. Okay, And so you have to thresh the grain, and one way they would do it is with an ox. And so the idea here is you don't put the ox above all that grain that he can smell and that he's working to uncase and then muzzle him so that he can't eat it, okay? And his idea here is if this is seen by the Bible as being cruel and unusual for animals, does it stop there? You see, one of the things about the Old Testament law that's very different than a modern book of law like in the United States is that it is apodictic in nature and here's what this means it means that it doesn't present every single law for every single case it presents principal examples okay so for example you couldn't read this in the Old Testament and say well I can't muzzle an ox so I'll use a donkey and I'll muzzle him right it, it only needs to be said once because it's the principle it's underlying and so Paul just says if this applies to animals how much more does it apply to people he asks the question, is it about oxen that God cares about? Are they his chosen, you know, the, the pinnacle of his creation? No, he makes this law because the principle applies even to the oxen. How much more to the man? He continues here and he says, is it of oxen God is concerned? Verse 10, does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Okay. Here we get actually a really interesting principle. Let me just sideline here. The, the recognition here is that you can't just use people like machines. You can't just take advantage of them and employ their muscles or their brains or their industry and then not pay anything for it. You know, that's the, the principle underlying here. This is a, a direct attack on what this morning I'll call capital S slavery, okay? Slavery exists throughout the history of the world until very recently in almost every culture. Uh, so that means that you find it within the Bible, and it does make, um, make some rules for the proper treatment of slaves. But if you read closely and carefully, the slavery we find employed in the scriptures, not just represented in the scriptures, but the ones that are actually dictated by rules like this, are not, not perfectly equal to slavery, whether in the 19th century in American slavery uh, or even in the first century in the Roman Empire. 
And here we see that same principle. And Paul says, look, it's there the whole time. It's been there the whole time. But remember here what he's actually doing. He says, this idea that I have that the church should support me for working at the church, is this not a biblical idea? And so he reaches all the way back in the Old Testament and says, isn't this just the principle of of work in general? He continues in verse 11 and he says, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And so first he says, he says, but the Bible says I can do it. The Bible says I should do it. It lays out a principle, so I'm in my right to do it. And then he says, and not only that, but can we just make a comparison? If what I'm doing in your field is sowing spiritual things and all you're paying me is material things, in other words, don't you truly value the work I'm doing as being something that's profound and eternal and tremendous? Is it really uh, anything big to share in physical things? If I've led you to the Lord and because of that I've changed your eternal destiny, is it too much to ask for a sandwich? Right? This is what he's saying. And once again, I think this is a place where we can find a defense of our rights and we can say, but it's, it's not really that big of a deal. You know, I do so much. This is just such a small thing. And so Paul says, that's true of me as well. He continues on. And he says, uh, verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? He says, not only is there a difference of scale between work and profit, but he also says the work we've done versus others. He actually says something really intriguing here because it sounds like the church in Corinth is used to paying their pastors, simply put. There's other people who have come in like Peter and they're like, hey, Peter, we're glad you're here. We took up an offering. Thank you for coming. Now, Paul has never at this point been rejected a paycheck. That's not what's going on. Paul has refused it. But his point is, wouldn't we be in our right to ask it? Other people have, and I'm much more deserving than them, right? That's what Paul is saying. Nevertheless, he says in verse 12, we have not made use of that right. He says, but we've never done it. But we've never gone on salary. We've never gone on staff. But we've never taken up an offering. We've never asked for anything. See, the way that Paul did this in his ministry in most places, and especially in Corinth, is that he had a day job. He was a tent maker. And so during the day, he would work making a living, making tents, and during the evening and on his lunch break and on the weekends, if you will, he would serve in the church. And so he provided, and he says in another place, not only did he provide for himself, but his entire posse, all of these people that ministered with him. If they didn't have a trade, he, he took care of their bill. He fed them, okay? And so he says, we've not made use of this. Now, we have two things going on here that we should reference. The first is, Paul makes a pretty solid case that we should take care of ministers, missionaries, pastors, etc. He lays out the case. He says, there's a biblical principle in it. It's an industry standard. You should be appreciative and grateful of what a pastor's done for your life, and it's a small exchange. All of those things are true. Nevertheless, He's never taken advantage of it. Why? It's not because Paul is, uh, you know, um, individually or, or personally wealthy, and so he doesn't need to. No, he's having to work very hard. And if you read the New Testament, you get the feeling that Paul generally, generally pulls long hours as it is. Okay? So this is not like he's fitting ministry into the margin of, margins of his life. He has two full-time jobs. Okay? Uh, this reality is, is pretty extreme, but he says, I've, I've taken this on willingly. I've chosen to do this. 
Now, if you have any sort of self-sensitivity at all, you just find yourself going, why? Why would you do that? It's well within his rights. There's a major difference, right, between getting your rights and fighting for your rights, which is not what we're talking about this morning. He just says, I didn't take it at all. In fact, don't you think, think along with me this morning, don't you think there must have been a small portion of people in the church in Corinth who tried to hand Paul money? I mean, maybe there were those who were already getting suspicious of his leadership that, you know, comes into the fully orbed reality of 2 Corinthians. But don't you think there were some and he just refused? Don't you think there were those who made rational arguments and said, Paul, imagine what you could do with the 40 hours you spend tent making. Imagine what more you could do. I want to bring you into this. And he refused. I think whenever we encounter these people, we, we want to we know why. That's why Paul is drawing this illustration. It's not because his apostleship is on the line and he needs to defend himself and so it's a convenient illustration. It's because here at first glance, Paul's behavior doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> so notice this. He says, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but he gives us a first explanation here. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So he presents two roads here. He says, one... I get paid, that's normal and natural, I deserve it, it's my right. Or I can go a way that puts no obstacle in front of people believing in the gospel. And at first we go, well, what's the big deal? And here's what most commentators believe Paul is referencing, okay? If you've been a part of this church since we started in 1 Corinthians earlier this year, you know that Corinth loved wisdom and loved philosophy teachers, and loved itinerant preachers of all sorts of ideas, and all of those guys made a living by their philosophy, okay? Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, they all did that. Well, Socrates is an exception. That's another story. Um, but they all did that for money. It was, they made a living by teaching people, just like we pay our teachers today, okay? Paul recognizes that there's a small camp in that group that are just hucksters, right? that are just taking advantage of people, uh, that are the tele-evangelists, if you will, of Paul's day, even though they're pagan tele-evangelists, like all tele-evangelists. Um, anyway, um, he recognizes this, and he says, you know what, I have an opportunity to take that out of the running. I have an opportunity to make that excuse irrelevant because it doesn't apply to me. Right? And I think even if you're... you're um, even if you're a Christian today, and especially if you're visiting and you're not a Christian this morning, there is that sensibility that says, a lot of people are clearly just in this for the money. And so we just generally think if money comes up, it's because money matters. And Paul just removes that from the formula entirely. Nobody can look at Paul and say, you're in it for the money, right? And that's the choice that he's made. Now, it's a, it's a surprising one. Uh, and it's not necessarily necessary but that's not the point he says I would rather work 40 hours a week at a job take my own paycheck than have the possibility of putting an offense a stumbling block possibility of anyone not being able to hear the gospel because they've written off the preacher okay he continues on here and he says in verse 13 do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in sacrificial offerings? Now, at first, this looks like he's reaching back into the Old Testament, but more likely, he's bringing this full circle. 
Remember, this whole section of 1 Corinthians is dealing with the issue of food sacrificed at pagan altars. And he says, isn't there an entire priesthood in Corinth that when you go to the altars, they're eating of the offering? He says, isn't this the norm beyond Christianity? Isn't this everything you've experienced? And then he jumps back in and he says in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So now he comes to the capstone of the argument. And he says, not only is it true everywhere, but even Jesus said this is how things should be. And so what Jesus had said in his ministry, and he says it a different way in another place, but on the occasion that Paul's probably referring to, he just says the laborer is worthy of his wages. He says that when the disciples go out as missionaries, they shouldn't take enough to survive on, but that basically God will pay their bills through the church. Okay? And so he says this is, this is what Jesus commanded us to do as a church, is to take care of those who minister in the church. But, verse 515, he repeats himself, he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. And then listen to this, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He says, this is not a letter of rebuke. I'm not telling you these things so you'll feel guilty about your behavior and fix anything. And I'd like to add to this, not only is he not trying to change the tactic and say, hey guys, it's time for a raise. But on top of that here, he's also not doing something which is a primary reason why we don't take advantage of our rights, which is when we don't take advantage of our rights, we can hold it over other people, right? Don't read this as, uh, as the guilt trip of a mother who, who says, you know, who basically takes all the things she doesn't make you do and tells you about them all the time. Paul is not bringing this up so that they'll have more gratitude for him or so that they'll feel bad about their behavior. He's not in it for those consequences at all. Now he starts to get under the roots and he starts to get into the reason. This is the big question we're asking again, okay? Why is it not enough just to take our rights? Why is it not enough to make the decisions in our life as Christians based on what we deserve? And so Paul pre presents this strong and surprising example, right? It's not a beer after work. It's 40 hours of work all day long, year after year, so that he can do this. This is not a small or minor decision. It's a big one. And as we've seen, it's not a decision that's rooted in one or two decent arguments for why it should be the case. He's made a pretty solid case. Whether you look at other, other pastors and uh, ministers, whether you look at the Old Testament, whether you look at the culture as a whole, every, every argument he's laid on the table and he says, but I still don't do it. And now he begins to tell us why. The first thing he says is, once again in uh, verse uh, 15, at the tail end there, he says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now, at first... That sounds like he's using this as a demonstration that he's better than us, doesn't it, right? He says, I'd rather die than lose my grounds for boasting. But don't misunderstand Paul here. It's not boasting in himself. It's boasting in something else. In fact, earlier in this letter, Paul himself says that the only thing that any man can boast in is Jesus Christ himself, okay? Also, if we are right, and Paul's already starting to experience resistance against his apostleship, in 2 Corinthians we discover that one of the things that, the, that everybody criticizes Paul for is that he doesn't make a big deal of himself. 
right? You're an apostle, Paul. You should be parading in here, throwing around your authority. The fact that you don't do so makes us uncomfortable. It, it seems like evidence that you're not really anything because you pretend like you're no big deal. In fact, some say, Paul, you're not even defending yourself against these super apostles. Why don't you stand up for yourself? And so in 2 Corinthians, he, in his own words, loses his mind for a moment and finally lays it all on the table. He says, you want me to boast? Fine. It may be here that he's, all, uh, he's already being a little bit ironic. And so he puts this word on the table that they would be generally comfortable with, boasting, pointing to what he's done, but he's not meaning it in the way they think. Here's what I'm telling you. Like oftentimes in the scriptures, this is a trap, okay? It's to make you feel comfortable and go, oh, okay, so I thought that Paul was better than me, but he just is evaluating, uh, evaluating his rewards differently. And so what he really wants out of this is the ability to show everybody and demonstrate how great of a person he is. Is that not something we see every day in our lives? Can't people abstain from all sorts of things just to demonstrate to everyone else that they're the best and you aren't, right? But that's not what's going on here. It is, however, a common trait of the Corinthians, right? Underlying even this argument of food sacrifice to idols is an element of pride that says, I'm in the smart group. I'm in the group that knows this is no big deal. I'm in the group that's mature enough to have freedoms. We're the ones with a strong conscience. We know right and wrong, and we're not superstitious, right? And so he actually here lays on the table something that seems terribly familiar to the church and to us, but he's not done yet. Notice how he finishes off here. He says, verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. The first thing is, he says, now I'm not talking about the fact that I preach the gospel at all. He says, my apostleship doesn't give me any grounds to boast at all. There's no reward in that. And the reason, he says, uh, as he continues here, uh, is for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The idea here is that he's been commissioned to it, right? How does Paul introduce himself in most of his letters? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm an apostle, but I was enlisted for this. I do this on behalf of another. I am only serving, and my job, therefore, is a stewardship, okay? He says, doing what I have to do, that doesn't garner me any room for boasting, right? Any more than any other servant can go, yeah, I'm a slave, right? He sets that aside entirely. In fact, he goes on and he says here, um, verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. He says, if this had been my idea, if I was the one who was like, oh, Jesus is so great, I should go tell everybody about it. If I had come to all these foreign places and traveled all through all these difficulties out of my own ambition, then you could go, wow, what a great and loving and tremendously cool person Paul is. He says, but that's not how it worked at all. Remember that Paul's beginning of his trip begins with kicking and screaming, okay? He's, he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I have to do this. And if I, if I can relate with the Apostle Paul at all, this isn't just an external woe, it's an internal woe, okay? He can't keep his mouth shut. He can't. Jeremiah in the Old Testament says, there was an occasion where the cost was too high. I didn't want to tell people about God anymore. I didn't want to be his prophet anymore. And so I shut my mouth and it burned inside me, okay? 
I'm sure Paul understands this principle. This is not just what he's been called to, but it's what he's been built for. Okay? But he can't take any credit for that. Because the calling didn't begin with him, and neither did the building. Right? He can't say, I'm an eloquent speaker, knowing that God has made his tongue. He can't say, I'm persuasive, knowing that, if the, that the natural mind doesn't comprehend the things of God. If the Spirit of God isn't working, right, then Paul's words don't do anything. So he lays this all on the end, and then he gets to the, to the meat of it. And I want you to notice how surprising it is. He removes that, and he says, okay, but I can boast in that I do this on my own expense. But notice what he says in verse 18. What, then, is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. At first you go, wait, that's not your reward. That's the means. You haven't told us the end yet. He says, what's my reward? That I do it free. He says, what's the benefit of this? That I get to offer it freely. And you go, what? I mean, I think some of us at the end of the day, we're expecting this passage to end and say, what's my reward? It's off there in eternity. God will pay me back for all of the investment I did with my, you know, blood, sweat, and tears making tents for myself. Every cent God will repay. And clearly there's a sense of that. The Bible makes clear that God will reward us for our decisions, for our behavior, for our sacrifice, all of those things. But that's not the reward to Paul. Read it again with me. What does he say? What then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? He says the reward is that I don't make use of my rights. How can this be? What is going on here? Here's the thing. What we're talking about this morning is love. And love doesn't always play by the rules. Okay. Let me just make an illustration this morning of romantic love. Romantic love and demanding your rights are two very different things. And it's like oil and vinegar. They can't mix. They don't go together. That's why you'll never watch a romantic movie and it will climax in the words, you had me at prenup. Right? Because if you step into a romantic relationship and go, hey, if this goes south, I want to make sure I'm protected, it's no longer a romantic relationship. The two are at odds. What Paul is saying here is what I'm after, what I'm excited about, is love. And there's this irony to it that, that makes um, vows, for example. Because that's what Paul has done. He's taken a vow. I'm not going to take a paycheck. And, and it makes vows seem, um, seem very odd, but vows being a part of love is just part of history. A vow comes up with a way to sacrificially show love. That's what it is. And so what Paul says here is the reward is that I get to do this ministry. The reward is that more people come to the gospel. He basically says, as he says to the Corinthian church in another place, you are my reward. You are my crown. He says, you want to know why I don't take a paycheck? I love not taking a paycheck because look what it's done. Here you are. And like I said, if you've ever experienced a loving relationship, we have elements of this. There are times where you lay down your rights, not just because a relationship is a give and take, but because one of the things you can do to demonstrate your love is to lay aside what you deserve. One of the things you can do to love somebody is to not demand your rights and go, look, this is the way it should go, but I want to, not just I love you, but I want to show you that love, so I'm going to make it go differently. 
Like I said, there are places where we understand this and there's a huge category where we don't. Here's the point. A Christian ethic never runs on desserts. It never runs on what we deserve. If we get into this idea that says the way that I'm going to determine what's right in my life is going to be based on how it ends for me, on what I've earned, what I deserve, then you're always starting in the wrong place. And all I want to say here is that maybe, maybe when you fight for your rights, maybe when you, you know, stumble another person because you deserve this at the end of the day and you've worked really hard, maybe the issue is not, not just that it's bad for that person, but you've actually settled for merely your rights. Maybe God has something better for us than what we deserve, okay? I want you to feel the surprise of Paul's words this morning and go, there's a part of me that doesn't understand that. You see, do you remember when you were in high school and everybody loved that album and you were just snobby enough to not give it a chance and then you did and you ended up loving it? All I'm trying to say this morning is that the greatest hits of Jesus Christ we're inherently suspicious of because they're so foreign to us. That doesn't make them wrong. And Jesus constantly points to this ethic of love, not just being the right life and the only way to live, but the good life, abundant life, a valuable life. And the only way you're going to discover this is to stop fighting for yourself and start laying yourself down. Listen, there's a reason why we know that Christianity is not about our rights and about what we deserve. At the very end of this passage... All the way after chapter 10, Paul finishes with these words. So therefore, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, you want to know why I don't take a paycheck? Because I'm following Jesus, and this is what his life looked like. He says in the book of Philippians that Jesus, knowing his equality with God, all of the glory and worship and authority and power, knowing as he sat there in heaven, he didn't demand those rights. He didn't hold on to them. He didn't grasp them, but he instead made himself of no reputation, becoming a man, taking on the form of a servant, right? Being obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, and not any death, but just, not just any death, but death on the cross, okay? That's what's underlying this. God didn't demand his rights, He didn't say, guys, look, the formula is simple. I'm the creator. You're the creation. You owe me a bit of gratitude. You owe me your worship. There's not a day that goes by in your life that belongs to you. It all belongs to me, so you give it or hell. No, he became a man. And despite all of that selfishness, despite all of that self-centeredness, despite the fact that we don't always live lives of love, he lovingly became a man laid aside his rights, okay? And not only that, it's not just an illustration. We can't just go, Jesus did a good thing, we should do good things too. No, Jesus did a good thing for you. And it's true of Paul too, right? Why didn't he take the paycheck? Was it to teach the Corinthians a lesson? No, it's because he loved the Corinthians, okay? And so the reality that we get to this morning is that settling for your rights is the problem that when we demand our rights and when we fight for our rights and when we come at a Christian ethic and say, you know what, I deserve better than this. 
it's not just that that's a foolish track, as it often is. It's also never going to lead you to the good things that God has for you. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me just finish this way. It's pretty easy for us to assume in first encountering Christianity that it's about what we deserve, that it's about our rights, that it's about the reward. But Christianity is effectively a great reversal of all those things. It says what we deserve is death. What we've earned with our life, the wages of sin, the paycheck of sin is death, it says in the book of Romans. It says that what we deserve is the justice and wrath of God, and instead of that, God has offered us something better and freely. And so, at the the very least, if you're not a Christian this morning, allow that aspect, that misunderstanding to fall away. Look at Paul here and recognize that when he comes to his conclusion and says, you want to know why I do this? It's a little hard to understand. Remember that this is not just a church that loves and uh, applauds and embraces Paul, but a church that's become oddly suspicious of him, that's started arguing with him and no longer listens to him, that forgets all of this work that he's put into the relationship, and still he says, but I love you, so it continues. And for us who are Christians this morning, there are places in your life where the metric of decision-making has nothing to do with love where you're not really thinking beyond your own will or desires or rights or knowledge at all. And the Bible doesn't just say you should love other people because that's right. It also says there's a tremendous wealth of goodness there that you're not tapping into because you settle for these skirmishes about your rights. Earlier, Paul says something intense. He says, are you really going to choose a sandwich over somebody for whom Jesus died. Jesus died for them and you'll send them to death with just a sandwich. It's a total tip in the scales. The reverse is what comes out this morning. And it says, are you really going to are you really going to settle for just a sandwich when you have this opportunity of love? I'll finish with an illustration and then we'll pray. If any of you have ever had a family member go through an awful and terrible hospital stay, It throws your life into the ringer, right? Your schedules fall away, your self-care falls away, your habits and rhythm, uh, nights become sleepless, whether you're at the hospital or not, it doesn't matter. Have you ever noticed that at the end of that, and it doesn't matter if there's healing or if there's death at the end of that, at the end of that, you don't go, man, I wish I wouldn't have wasted all that time. I wish I had just stayed away and taken more time for myself Right? If anything, what are the regrets we have in those places? Any moment we missed was a moment, even if they live, even if they heal entirely, it was a moment to invest in love, to say, you're worth my time. There's no place I'd rather be, right? You're not looking at your watch and thinking, oh, I'm going to miss that TV show. It's not even on the table. Is it possible that that's a glimpse into reality? Not an interruption in life, but a pulling back of the curtain of what's real and what's valuable and what's good. Paul got the message, and he said, not even a paycheck is worth loving these people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church, this church that was so exciting for me to come home to, that not even 
a city as tremendously large and tremendously city-like as Paris could tear me away. I thank you, Lord, for the places in our life where we have learned this lesson. And even if we haven't learned it in our own relationships, we've seen it in our relationship with you in this tremendous demonstration of love. I ask that you would uproot all of these false metrics for what's right and what's wrong. And instead we would ask what's loving, not just because that's a better metric in the sense of right and wrong, but because it's a better metric in the sense of what God has built life to be. And I pray that you just help us to take the blinders of self off and that we would see all of the things, these things for what they are at their heart as being self-centered. I pray for, for places this week where we can see with clarity and with full argument our rights and where we can elect not to employ them and have something better. I ask this in your name. Amen. As we respond this morning, we'll sing a few songs. Um, we will uh, partake of communion. If you're a Christian, on your own timing, feel free to come forward, partake of the body that was broken, drink of the cup of the blood that was shed. Um, if you're in need of prayer this morning, Alan's sitting up here. He would love to pray with you or for you, and so feel free to come forward for that. Uh, and let's just take some time and respond.